Welcome to the Lit Matters Podcast, a show whose journey is to discover the books that matter, the stories that we should all be reading. I'm your host, Chris Evans, and I've devoted decades in education examining this very topic. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest, fellow teachers, librarians, writers, and lovers of books from all walks of life who will advocate for a single transformative book, one that we should all be reading. Through this podcast, I hope to build a collective bookshelf of amazing stories, lit that matters. Thank you for joining us on the maiden voyage of the Lit Matters podcast. Today, we'll be hoisting our mainsail and setting out in search of our own white whale. To discuss Herman Melville's 1851 classic, Moby Dick, we are joined by Dr. Dean Franco, author of three books, including The Border and the Line, Race, Literature, and Los Angeles. He is a professor of English and the director of the Humanities Institute at Wake Forest University. Welcome to the show, Dean. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be talking with you. Oh, it's so great to have you, Dean. Thank you so very much. And as you know, Lit Matters is intended to be a celebration of great books and and stories that we all read and love. So before we turn to Moby Dick, I just want to chat for a quick moment. Dean, what's your origin story with books, with stories? Have you always been an avid reader? I love answering that question from you because you and I have been talking about the books we read for decades now. Um, In in fact, I've been reading all my life. I was reading avidly as a young kid, whatever I could get my hands on and everything off my parents' shelf. But I never thought of myself as a reader. I didn't major in English. I never thought of myself as being a good uh, English student in high school uh, until my junior year in college. In fact, I studied abroad. I was away for a year. I experienced my first cold winter outside of California. And I spent a lot of time just kind of hunkered down under a blanket reading. Um, And that's when it really dawned on me that like reading could actually be an academic enterprise. And I came home from my study abroad year and I declared English as my major and, and you know, the rest is my career. And then by grad school, I remember you wrote a paper that made me want to cry. It was so smart. Uh, I remember reading that thing thinking, wow, that's impressive. So fantastic, fantastic. So Dean, I, I always like to ask at least one question that's a bit of a curveball, just something odd, something strange. And, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll go with this one. If you could host a dinner party with a small select guest list, myself included, and invite only three people, one musician, one writer, and one fictional literary character, who would you invite? Well, Chris, if you're going to be there, <laughs> then we need to have a musician that you and I both would love to meet. And so we would invite David Bowie. All right. Now, stick with me on this one, because this is not going to seem intuitive, but uh, the writer I would invite to join us would be Emily Dickinson. What do you think of that before I tell you my, my fictional character? First, uh, to have any time with David Bowie and pick his brain about all of those albums, especially the early ones from the 70s, that would be so fantastic. Uh, there are so many mutations of what he does. It would be incredible. As far as Emily Dickinson, I can't think of two other poets who perhaps changed the art form as she did. I'm on board. Uh, pass me the pita bread. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Uh, what I else do you think have? Of, I think of Dickinson as such a um, uh, a persona maker in some of the ways that Bowie was. I mean, of course, Bowie did it in public over and over, but Dickinson also was a master of persona. Um, and Dickinson had so much faith in her own talent, as did Bowie, obviously. Um, and I, they also have a similar romantic sensibility, I think. So I, I think that each could bring the best out in each other. 
And then my true wild card is a literary character that I'm sure almost nobody listening has heard of. Uh, it's a character from Ralph Ellison's unpublished posthumous novel called Three Days Before the Shooting. Uh, this is the novel Ellison worked on for decades that he never finished. It came in at tens of thousands of pages. The character's name is Lee Willie Minifees, and Lee Willie shows up for a chapter. He's a uh, blues musician who suffers a racist insult and as a response drives his car onto the lawn of a senator, a racist senator, somebody like a Strom Thurmond type, and burns the Cadillac right there on his lawn. And while the Cadillac is aflame, he gives this most outrageous, ironic, extraordinarily dazzling kind of speech about why he's doing what he's doing. And so you put the outrageousness and the linguistic play of Lee Willie, Melville, uh, uh, Ellison's creation, and you put that alongside Bowie and Dickinson, and you and I would just sit back there and, you know, sip our champagne and, and munch on our, our food and listen to these three go. Because because we as English teachers, we're, we're champagne sippers quite often, I think. I think probably more bourbon, wouldn't you think? Uh, that sounds fantastic. What, 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 a, what a great evening that would be. I am in. Let's book that right now, if possible. Uh, <laughs> let's let's sort of set course now for for, for Moby Dick. Uh, and I must admit, it's one of those books that when, when you said you were going to discuss it, I have not read Moby Dick since I was probably 18 or 19. And I think I probably skimmed a lot of the the the, the really specific parts of, of how to how to skin a whale and all the different types of whales. And I really enjoyed uh, revisiting the, the book. So so before we start, uh, for, for our listeners, can you give us a little information about Herman Melville? Who was he when he was writing Moby Dick? Uh, who's his audience? What, what's going on in 1851 when this book is published? Sure. Uh, by the time Melville is writing Moby Dick, he has an established reputation as a writer. Um, mostly he had been very popular in the 1840s as a result of two prior novels, Taipei and Umu. Uh, those novels were uh, fictionalized accounts of Melville's own life at sea. Melville himself uh, grew up in a once prosperous family in New York that by the time he was a teenager had lost all its money. And uh, though he was, I don't wanna say well-educated, he was, he was certainly educated, but by the time he was 20, he had to go set out to sail uh, to make his way. So Melville set out to sail, um, had extraordinary experiences in the South Pacific, um, was really sparked alive, I think, uh, intellectually and culturally by what he experienced uh, in the South Pacific Islands, especially the way in which, so I should say he also participated in a mutiny and lived as a beachcomber in Tahiti for some months um, before being picked up again. So he spent some real proper time in the South Pacific. Haven't and, we all um, participated in a mutiny at least once in our life, right? You know, Look, if you haven't participated in a mutiny at least once in your life, can you really call yourself a writer? <laughs> um, but he learned a lot about how to live outside of the Victorian era norms of his period. And he came to distrust uh, forms of religion. And he came to distrust forms of economic competition. And he certainly came to distrust um, the Western constructs of gender and sexuality, especially like who gets to give sex and have sex at any given time. He had a lot of sex is, is, what, I'm, is what I'm getting at. So that shows up in his uh, first two novels. He becomes popular, but then he starts writing more philosophical works. And the more philosophical he writes, the less his audience understands what he's doing. And they, they are clamoring for a return to form. Um, 
I should also add that as he's writing Moby Dick, he's broke. Uh, his father-in-law is well off. His father-in-law is the attorney, uh, excuse me, the state, the Supreme Court justice for the state of Massachusetts and um, well-to-do and, and regularly stakes Melville and his family. But Melville's really need, in need of a breakthrough book. So he spends a year working on Moby Dick. It's just a furious year of writing 12-hour days, you know, six, seven days a week. Um, and uh, by the time it's published, uh, he's exhausted. His family is at its wit's end. And I think you probably know, many of folks know, uh, the novel is a flop. It's considered a baffling text. His family thinks he's lost his mind. Um, they're embarrassed for him and they don't know what to do with him. Wow. I was I was struck. And you mentioned like the, the sort of philosophical nature of it rereading it again as a, you know, no longer an 18 year old, I was struck by how deep and thoughtful it was. And, and it, I'm not saying it surprised me, but it hit me very differently, you know, as, as an older man than it did certainly as, as an 18 year old. Uh, wow. A year to, to pump out that novel. That's, that's pretty fantastic. Pretty amazing. Uh, and I want to say one thing about what you just said, which is that I don't know who's listening now. If you are younger, go ahead and do what we all had to do, which is kind of slog through it, because the real treat of Moby Dick is rereading it as you get older and you find increasing understanding of what Ishmael and Melville himself understood as a middle-aged person. It's, it's really a beautiful experience to be able to re-encounter that as you get older. So building off of that, you know, it has one of the greatest opening lines of any novel ever written right call me ishmael not a spoiler the book's been around since 1851 and i'm curious is it ishmael's story is it moby dick's story is it ahab's story how did you sort of see this is he just the storyteller who we see this through or do you think it's his actual story oh that's a wonderful question um it's it is such a great opening line and um, we tend to pay a lot of attention to the name <laughs> and the me, call me Ishmael, but also consider it's an invocation. It's a direct address to the reader. I want you to call me Ishmael. Right? It might not even be my name, but let's assume that's my name. And now we will proceed together. Um, the, the implied audience of the, of the address is part of the um, story itself. That, Mel, that Ishmael always thinks you are there listening to everything he has to say and that you want to know everything he has to say, I think helps compose the story. Um, let me ask you this, Chris, when you read it the first time or reread it the second time, does it surprise you how um, long it takes before we finally get to Ahab? And how long like it that before we get to Moby Dick itself? I think that was the surprise to me was how long it takes to get to Moby Dick. I mean, we hear about Moby Dick all throughout, much like we hear about Ahab, but I thought it was actually brilliantly done. It reminded me a bit of something like Gatsby, right? Where we hear about Gatsby before we see Gatsby. And I enjoyed that because it only built the tension of, and by, you know, I obviously don't want to give away spoilers. By the end, I was all in. I, let's, 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 you know, let's meet this whale and see what happens. And it's, it's, it's such an interesting pacing how it works. You know, at the end of The Great Gatsby, Nick says something like, I paraphrase, this is, I realize this has been a story about the West after all. And as a reader, you might be inclined to think, wait, how is this about the West? It took place in New York. But what you realize all along is Nick is reflecting on a whole raft of cultures and norms and perceptions in American history. And likewise with, you know, back to your prior question, likewise with Moby Dick, it is nominally about Ahab and Ahab's attempt to slaughter this whale and seek his vengeance. 
but it's also about this whole raft of political thought that Melville is considering, uh, philosophy, um, uh, emergent science. Uh, this is a time when the science and the humanities and the arts are not divided into separate domains. And so every time he's thinking through something scientifically, he's also thinking about it artistically and historically and humanistically. So it's about all of those things on the way to the story about Ahab and Moby Dick. Well, well for our readers who we're, we're, we want to share this book with them, can you give them like a, just a spoiler-free, least we need to know, back of the cover, uh, you know, explanation of, of, of what Moby Dick's about. Yeah, so so I'll be very brief, but, but I have to say there are really two summaries, as I've been indicating. Uh, the first summary is simple. Our narrator, Ishmael, is telling the story of Ahab's ruinous and vengeful quest to hunt a whale that had previously injured him. In the end, the whale attacks the ship and Ishmael survives to tell the tale. The other summary I would give is that Ishmael is a middle-aged man reflecting on life and the extremity of this voyage on the Pequot, the name of the ship, including all of its characters and the ship's mission. He is given room to reflect on and philosophize about everything under the sun, and he does. Um, he is completely freed from all the constraints of shore life, and with that freedom, his mind is able to recreate, in some ways, America itself. <laughs> Almost like what we're going through with the pandemic, right? We've all had that reflective space to hopefully, you know, consider all of these possibilities too. Let, let's sort of lighten it up a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, who do you think wins in a fight, Moby Dick or, or the shark from Jaws? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Moby Dick has a lot of intelligence behind that massive head. You know, Melville will say, or Ishmael will say that there's really no knowing where the sperm whale's head begins and the tail ends. It seems to be all head. And between the battering ram of the sperm whale and the intelligence within, I give it to the, give it to the whale. I think so too. Uh, score, score one round for the sperm whale. Or um, if I may, if I may paraphrase, you're going to need a bigger shark. <laughs> you know, Dean. Some, sometimes I think the narrative structure can be daunting for for, for readers when they approach Moby Dick. Uh, you know, what advice do you have, sort of the, the, the non PhD reader, uh, of how to you know really love and enjoy this novel? Well, um, it is daunting. There's no doubt about it. And I think one of the most daunting aspects is that the beginning is really long. Uh, for a long time, Ishmael is getting oriented on shore and the sense of delay before he finally gets on the ship, which is what I think most readers anticipate. It just, it just takes a while. So um, one piece of advice is don't get too frustrated by that. Um, uh, Melville is laying down tracks that will be useful, but just, just know that it's gonna take a while before you get on board the Pequod. Um, my other advice, you know, I don't think my teacher colleagues would enjoy this, but my other piece of advice is that it is okay to skim. I think everybody does now and then. I've read this thing a dozen times and I probably skim some section uh, every time I do it. And then my third piece of advice is that though this novel does have plot, um, in some ways the plot is a framework for everything else that's being discussed and thought about. And in that sense, you can really open the text up to just about anywhere you, know, you can put it down for a month and then pick it up again. And, and it doesn't even matter if you've lost the thread, it's still gonna be there. And I wanna say something really like offensive to my teacher friends who are specialists in Melville. But I was thinking about this today, like 
the popularity of uh, baking shows and the popularity of fix, fix your home shows where people are watching these things and they have no intent of baking a cake and no intent of fixing their home out. But it's just a joy to watch people figure out problems and figure out how to do process, right? And you could turn on those shows at any point, turn, turn on 10 minutes in, doesn't matter what you missed, you could just pick it up and go. That's kind of how Moby Dick is too. So don't be thrown by what comes next. Uh, don't be shy about skimming. Feel free to put it down for a month and pick it up later. You won't have lost anything. Just go with it. And I do feel as though there, there's a portion. I've obviously never and never intend to hunt a whale, but it, it's almost like this instruction manual for, for how a ship works, how maritime law works, yeah. you know, what a, what a harpoon is, you know, all of these things that I, I was really fascinated by that you can, it, it's so visually beautiful and how it presents that. And I was surprised by that, you know, and so, so again, something that when I read it, when I was 18, that I did just skim quickly. Now I was, I was immersed. I wanted to know more. It was opening up new little doors throughout. And I, I really enjoyed that. Um, my favorite edition is the University of California Press edition. It's large. The type is large. There are utterly beautiful um, etchings in it, you know, pictures every third or fourth page that are fantastic. And that actually is really freeing as opposed to reading a uh, super dense type, you know, um, uh, uh, text. So just get yourself an edition that is really readable. Um, the other thing I want to say about what you just said, which is that you learn so much about shipbuilding and whaling and what have you, is that you also learn about the mind thinking. You know, every time Ishmael is launching in to describe something, he's really trying to figure out how can I describe this? How can I tell you, you who are calling me Ishmael, about something I know you don't know? Well, let me give you science. Let me give you experience. Let me give you history. Let me give you uh, multiple cultures take on this topic, because often he'll say, here's what the Sumerians think, or here's what the ancient Greeks thought, or what have you. And so he's giving you this full flowering of how to think about anything. Uh, it's really like a fantastic example of the mind knowing itself. I'm curious, are there any passages that you that really resonated with you? Like when you read it, you know, it just, it, it takes you somewhere. What, what are your, some of your favorite passages from Moby Dick, and what, what do you love about them? Well, so many passages. I'll read one and I'll describe it first, but I'm going to just quote one, my favorite line first before I do the passage. Uh, my favorite line, back to this thing we were discussing about Ishmael trying to describe things. At one point in the novel, he says, do I dare try to explain this? And then he says, I try all things. I achieve what I can. <laughs> and to me, that's like the great American pragmatic spirit. But the lines that I want to read for you um, and that really speak to me today are from chapter 72. It's called The Monkey Rope. Uh, in this chapter, Ishmael is describing how they, when they've killed a whale, how they keep it steady next to the ship in the water while they proceed to cut from it. Um, and what they do is they tie a rope to one person who's going to go overboard and stand on the whale and the whale's in the water. And somebody else is on board the ship with the rope tied to them. So two people are tied together by a rope, one person on the ship and one person standing on the whale, the whale's bobbing up and down in the water. Sharks are surrounding the whale while the person's standing on it. The ship and the whale are constantly crashing into each other as the whale waves lift and uh, uh, lift the ship up and down. And so the person holding the rope who's on the ship has to constantly be adjusting the rope, pulling in the slack and sometimes hoisting 
the, the person at the other end of the rope up so he's out of the shark's grasp and so forth. It's a dramatic and, and perilous experience for both people on either end. So in this section, Ishmael, our narrator, is partnered with Queequeg, his, his dear, dear friend, um, who comes from a cannibal community. Uh, and he explains what is at stake with the two of them being held together. And when I read the passage, I want you to think about how much this passage resonates with our present moment. There's mentions of the pharmaceutical industry and there's mentions of banking, uh, both of which have created uh, crises or alleviated crises in our present moment. So uh, Ishmael explains, so then an elongated Siamese ligature united us. Queequeg was my own inseparable twin brother, nor could I anyway get rid of the dangerous liabilities which the hempen bond entailed. So strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation then that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint stock company of two, that my free will had received a mortal wound and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Therefore, I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence, for its even-handed equity never could have sanctioned so gross an injustice. And yet still further pondering, while I jerked him now and then from between the whale and the ship, which would threaten to jam him, still pondering further, I say, I saw that this situation of mine was the precise situation of every mortal that breathes. Only in most cases, he, one way or other, has this Siamese connection with the plurality of other mortals. If your banker breaks, you snap. If your apothecary, by mistake, sends you poison in your pills, you die. True, you may say that by exceeding cautions, you may possibly escape these and the multitudinous other evil chances of life, but handle Queequeg's monkey rope heedfully, as I would, sometimes he jerked it so that I came very near sliding overboard. Nor could I possibly forget that to do what I would, I only had the management of one end of it. That is, that is fantastic. We all We're all to tied to one another by this monkey rope. Everybody's life puts our own life in peril. Everybody's success or failure uh, could drag us down into the water with them. Your pharmacist or pharmaceutical company producing vaccines, your banker making subprime loans. Uh, you, you live and die by, by, by the monkey rope attached to, to all of society. That's really beautifully stated too. And I, again, I love how that is, those are his considerations as Queequeg is down there doing just this, <laughs> you know, task of, of covered in all that is the whale goo. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I did find for, for me, when Queequeg is in the story, he is such sort of a scene stealer. He's such an amazing character. And then he disappears for a little while. And I was, I was thinking to myself, I need some more Queequeg, you know, it, yeah. because he's just so brilliantly, brilliantly described. Wow, that's really fantastic, Dean. Yeah, Queequeg's so wonderful because he's so foreign to uh, Ishmael at first, and Ishmael's terrified of him. But then instantly Ishmael's equanimity kicks in and his pluralism kicks in. And he says things like, 
sure, why not worship the idol that Queequeg is worshiping? I mean, what is Christianity but worshiping idols? And if we're going to do that, I can do that as well. And it's that equanimity, you know, things can be this way or things can be that way. And there are multiple ways of being right. That pluralism too, which I find extremely valuable and like a, a deeply American idea that's been suppressed in the last 20 or 30 years. But I think it's time for it to reemerge in, in American thought. Well, you know, I think that leads us sort of to the, the heart of the show, which is, why these books matter, like what they say about who we are, what they reflect about the world we live in. You know, for Moby Dick, I'm curious, you know, why do, Why does this book matter today? What does it say about who we are as a society? What can we gain and glean from it? Well, you know, every reader is going to have their own answers, of course. Um, one of the reasons it mattered to me a lot this year when I reread it was I found it very consoling uh, to read a voice that is thinking critically and deeply prior to the Civil War, the nation's greatest crisis, and to know that I could so identify with this person who's on the other side of some terrifying crisis. When we ourselves were in the midst of a crisis, it gave me hope and comfort to know that there is some kind of continuity in humanity, <laughs> uh, that there could be some continuity in this country and in what it is we value if between then and now and all the upheaval and disruption, we could nonetheless have that kind of identification. Also too though, to get back to what I was just saying, I, I believe that the um, equanimity, the modesty, the pluralism and the cosmopolitanism uh, of Ishmael is so valuable uh, for us right now in an age where we are, I think on the one hand, you know, tilted towards nationalism. And on the other hand, I don't think we have a lot of really well articulated virtues and values uh, to counter that. And we find we can find them in this novel. Yeah, I think that um, sort of the concept of love it or leave it only takes you so far. And if we don't follow, you know, the paths we've had before, I, mean, I think it's a, it's a wonderful point about the Civil War. And, you know, that was that moment that was so divisive and so destructive of who we were, where we were hanging on a knife's edge for being something entirely different from what we set out to be. What, what else I want to say too about this novel is that because it, it was written prior to the division of the sciences and the humanities into separate domains, you have, you have a science presented as a, as a human science of experience and empiricism and history. And um, I think it gives us a, a chance to recuperate um, our understanding of what science is and how we relate to it. Uh, people sometimes get thrown off by the fact that science changes over time or get thrown off by the fact that science has a history. Uh, but we get a full in, elaboration of what that is and what it looks like in this novel. And then the last thing I'll say, too, about why this matters is that it's deeply respectful of the natural world, even though it's about slaughtering a whale. Uh, the novel is super thoughtful and, and respectful of the natural world. Do you find then for you, Ahab comes across as the villain of this. He is destructive of that natural world. He is that, you know, sort of single-minded, solitary, obsessed with only one thing. I mean, is he the villain? Yeah, I mean, he, he has to be, except, you know, villain is too small a word for him. Um, it, it's too limiting. Um, he has, I mean, this is what's true of, the, of all of our real life villains, of course. He has a charisma, an intensity, an intelligence, 
and a degree of planning that's utterly extraordinary, but it all gets routed into the narrow, uh, narrowing prism of vengeance, right? Rather than refracting outwards, this becomes like this laser thing, uh, laser beam of vengeance where all that energy and, and capacity gets channeled through. And that's his villain, villainy in the end, you know? Uh, but it's not for, for single-mindedness, it's for the condensation of all the complexity that he could possibly be into one single goal. So Dean, I'm curious. Um... What is one question that you think a reader of Moby Dick should be thinking about as they visit this novel or revisit this novel? Well, I've been saying somewhat along these lines all along. Um, first, I think, you know, you want to dispatch with the um, the stance that we all have with old books where we think we're going to learn something about the past. So the question you would have in mind is not, what did everybody think about in the 19th century? Or, you know, um, what is this arcane thing called whaling? Those are not the proper questions. Uh, they're not gonna be generative for you is what I mean to say. Instead, I recommend readers consider how the novel is familiar, how the novel is near, and how the novel presents to you um, fresh understanding of your own life. So the lines we were discussing earlier where Ishmael's tied to the monkey rope and is thinking about the, the pharmacist, the apothecary and the banker, you know, that's very fresh and that's very familiar and that's very new. And if you're open to that and recognize that you're just going to get a lot of that in this novel, it's just a startling um, and um, energizing and thrilling text that way. So Dean, thank you so very much. Uh, I, 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 I implore all of our listeners to go out, pick up a copy of Moby Dick. It's one of those books you could find anywhere for a quarter at a used bookstore. Uh, I agree with you. I, I tried to sort of plow through one with very small text and it, it makes it feel very different from that sort of generous uh, sort of page that you were describing. But uh, please, everyone, go re read Moby Dick. So, so Dean, thank you very much for joining us on the, on the Lit Matters podcast. And thank you, Chris. For, thank you. Thank you. And for all of our listeners, please join us in two weeks for another episode of Lit Matters. We will move from the seas to the stars. Um, and uh, please be sure to subscribe to the Lit Matters podcast through Apple Music or Podbean. And uh, leave a review. Tell us what you like about the show. Give us suggestions for any books that you may like to hear about in the future. And um, I guess as they say on the seas, may you have fair winds. So, Dean, thank you so very much. Thank you, Chris. Congratulations on the show. Thank you for listening to Lit Matters. All content is written by Chris Evans, and the show is produced by Steve Baldwin. Music was provided by the band Soup, Find them at Apple Music and Spotify.